Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I want to open by uh, talking about this amazingly head-spinning news cycle we've been living through this last week or so. We're going to talk a little bit about that with my guest, Congressman John Sarbanes. But I'm also going to uh, divide this podcast uh, with a second part that includes some moments from a recent town hall I had, which is very timely on these subjects of presidential accountability. We brought in some constitutional law experts and had a wonderful community conversation in San Rafael last week. About 800 constituents joined me. And I am so impressed the way people keep showing up and participating in these incredibly uh, positive and energized community conversations that I wanted to share some of that with you. And uh, given the news of the last couple of weeks, I think uh, these are conversations you're going to want to hear. I'm delighted to have uh, a terrific colleague join me for this conversation. It's Congressman John Sarbanes from Maryland. He's been representing the 3rd District of Maryland since 2007, serves on the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And if some of uh, my listeners recognize the name Sarbanes but are confused by this very youthful, good-looking guy uh, that is John Sarbanes, I'm going to maybe ask him to explain uh, his political pedigree because he's not the Sarbanes of Sarbanes-Oxley. Well, you, by audio you suggested that I'm youthful looking, but nobody can see me, so they're going to have to take your, your word for that. But my father, Paul Sarbanes, was in Congress for many, many years, served from Maryland for six terms or five terms in the U.S. Senate, and one of his final legislative achievements was the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, where he tried to bring more accountability to, to how these publicly traded firms were operating and kind of how they had to attest to the integrity of their financial statements and so forth. So that's become a, a kind of best practices standard out there in corporate America and even among nonprofits who've embraced those, those standards. So I wasn't an author of it, but I often feel on many days like I'm sort of defending the family shield because mm -hmm. there are constant attacks coming from the other side to dilute some of these standards we put in place in terms of how people ought to be operating financially out there for the, for the good of the public. So I always take up that cause when, when it's necessary. Well, your dad was also uh, in the House, was he not, during a rather uh, momentous constitutional crisis? He served on the Judiciary Committee during the Watergate hearings. It was funny because when he first came here and he was selecting his committee, he was talking to a friend of his and he said, well, I think I'd like to go on the Judiciary Committee because this was in 1970. He said, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm kind of interested in that stuff. And his friend said, oh, the Judiciary Committee, that's such a boring committee. And then two cycles later, we had Watergate, and he was right in the middle of it. And he introduced something called the, the Sarbanes Substitute, which was one of the first articles of impeachment. So he was there during a very, obviously, tumultuous and consequential time uh, for the country, 
and one now that people are starting to refer back to as we grapple with what's coming at us with, with this uh, president. So it's been helpful to kind of have his perspective and experienced lens as we address some of these, these topics. Yeah, and, and they're coming at us fast and furious. So I want to get around to campaign finance reform. I want to talk about uh, some of the other uh, institutional crises, perhaps, that we're facing with the Trump administration. But let's, let's pause for a moment and reflect on this insane week that we have just been through. In the period of one week, um, we have had uh, earth seismic media cycles overtaking seismic media cycles involving um, the disclosure of Comey's fire, uh, firing and the, the memorialization of it in a memo, uh, debates about whether a tape exists, crazy tweets from the president, now the appointment of a special counsel, just as incredible pressure was building here in Congress to, to do more on this subject. Um, what, what is your hot take on this week that we've just been through? Well, I agree with you. It's certainly been head spinning. And I do think the sort of tectonic plates of accountability and ethics are beginning to shift into place here. And we need to seize on the opportunity to hold the president and his team accountable for their actions. As President of the United States, as Commander-in-Chief, as, as the executive, as the head of the executive branch, you're now stepping into a constitutional structure, the structure of our, of our constitutional democracy. And what comes with that is all of these checks and balances that we have under the Constitution and a higher level of accountability. So if you do something that crosses a boundary on Tuesday, doing something else on Thursday doesn't make the Tuesday event go away because the Tuesday event may have activated some investigation, some review by Congress, potentially the appointment of a special counsel we've now seen so that machinery begins to get activated. And everything you do subsequent to that, that crosses a boundary, gets added into the mix. It's a cumulative effect. And I think he's gonna to start to feel that from all sides. And you know, I, I said to, to somebody, when the president first got into office, I'm convinced that he didn't know there were three branches of government. He just thought there was an executive branch and he was signing these executive orders and waving them around his head and having the time of his life. You know, this is great being president. I get to do everything. <laughs> and then within a couple of weeks, he got challenged in, in the court on his refugee ban and discovered that there was an Article III you know, judicial branch. And a few weeks later, he comes here to Congress with a, quote, skinny budget that was dead on arrival and then tries to ram through that first health care bill and hey, he discovers there's an Article I legislative branch called the United States Congress. So he's beginning to feel the checks and balances and the accountability that comes from being not just some candidate out there, you know, but the President of the United States. And he ought to feel that accountability. Yeah. You gave a speech <laughs> recently uh, for the Center for American Progress on... Yeah. I'll characterize it as sort of this stress test to our democratic institutions that this administration is presenting us with. Talk a little bit about what you said there, and, yeah. and, and let's sort of talk about how we're holding up right now so far to this stress test. Well, the point of that was to first make it clear that ethics, 
paying attention to conflicts of interest, observing where sort of the boundaries of acceptable conduct are, recognizing that the presidency is something you hold in the public trust. It's not just another branding opportunity. That all of those things are not just some kind of harmless sideshow to your presidency. They go to the heart of it. They go to the heart of the credibility that you have with the public. And we have now a president who was largely elected on the basis of saying to a disaffected and cynical public that was feeling kind of left out of how things operate here in Washington. I'm going to be your voice. I'm going to give the power that's been in Washington back to you. I mean, right. his, that was, his phrase was, I'm going to transfer the power back to the people. He had a 16-minute inaugural address, dark, dystopic American atrocity, but if, right. if you had to find some substance in it, uh, it was this promise, looking America in the eye, that power today goes right. from Washington establishment to you, the people. Back to you. We're going to drain the swamp. We're going to give you the power. We're going to restore your voice. You know, all these promises about empowering people, being accountable to the public. And of course, he's done the absolute reverse. Instead of transferring power out of Washington to the people, he's really just aggrandizing more power to himself to his family, mm -hmm. to his business, to his buddies that he golfs with at Mar-a-Lago and you know, these dozen other um, golf courses that he owns around the country, and, and to elevating his brand. I mean, I think this is the problem with, with Donald Trump. He doesn't recognize the presidency as being something that's held in the public trust, where you have to act on behalf of the broad public. He just sees it as an opportunity mm -hmm. to elevate his brand further. And when you bring that kind of perspective, you're going to end up crossing lines. You're going to end up acting with divided loyalties. And I think that's the number one issue for the public. And that's what we kind of dwelt upon in the Center for American Progress address, was this idea that when the president goes to make a decision on public policy, you want him to be clear-headed in doing that based on what is in the public's interest. But if he has some business deal that could be benefited by going in a different direction, or if his family could benefit, for example, then somewhere in his brain, that's going to affect his judgment. And he's, he's going to end up with divided loyalties. This is why the public, I think, wants to see his tax returns. Well, and especially when he failed to deliver on his promise to create a truly blind trust. Uh, it, his conflicts are almost inseparable from any number of things that our federal government does every day now. Right, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So first you have, a, you have an executive order on conflicts that's got all these holes in it. And then to make matters worse, you come up with this idea that you can grant people waivers, but you're not going to tell anyone. You're not going to tell the public that. You'll just do it. You'll do it in secret. So by the end of the day, it's completely meaningless as a conflicts policy. But, but what's happening is, I think it's fair to say that if you look at these agencies, what the leadership in them is doing is it's kind of locking the doors, pulling down the shades, and ransacking these right. places, looting these places. I mean, you look at EPA. And they didn't even pull down the shades at EPA. Well, that's so true. You can look in the window, and what you see is them grabbing regulations off the shelf 
and handing them to the oil and gas industry and saying, here, take these away. Do whatever you want because we're not going to police you. We're not going to enforce regulations, which are all about the safety and the health of the American public. And this is being repeated in agency after agency. And it represents, to me, it goes to the heart of the fact that, that Donald Trump is breaking promises every single day that he made to the public. Now, the task, the challenge is how do you get that information to yeah. people in a way that they'll consume it and start to say, wait a second, maybe this guy who said he was going to look out for me and my family and so forth, maybe he's really just looking out for himself and his business and his brand and his buddies and the special interests. And if we can get that information to people, which is our responsibility to do, I think they may begin to turn, and a lot of this anger that they channeled through Donald Trump mm -hmm. on Election Day, they may begin to channel at him if they realize he's not following through on those fundamental promises. Yes. So there will be a betrayal factor at some point, you think? I think so. And I think it's fair for people to be empowered to hold him accountable. So what can we do, though? Because yeah. a lot of these things we're talking about, you know, Nixon's line was if the president does it, it's not illegal. We see Donald Trump uh, living that uh, motto every day, uh, including the, this incredible thing where he apparently uh, uh, acknowledged having shared classified information with the Russian ambassador in, in this bizarre Oval Office meeting. and. He says he's got an absolute right to just declassify things on, on the moment, on the spot. Right. Uh, technically true. All of these things, the, the conflicts rules. Um, we can't have a special counsel pursue criminal charges for any of it because he technically can get away with this stuff as president. But there are some other institutions that can kick in for accountability, right? Well, obviously the United States Congress can do that if we can get the Republican leadership here. To, to use the phrase that's being used a lot now, to put country above party and to understand that there are certain standards of conduct in terms of how the president should operate that ought to be adhered to regardless of what your party is, uh, then that would be a step forward. Beginning to see a little bit of that, but not nearly the kind of robust response that the legislative branch as right. a check and balance on the executive branch ought to be demonstrating. So, so if you had to grade the congressional committees that have been charged with oversight and investigation so far in the fifth month of the Trump presidency? Well, they get a failing grade so far. I mean, I sit on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee as an example, and you know, ranking member Cummings and other members of the committee on the Democratic side have been beseeching. Uh, Jason Chaffetz to do more. Now, he has just recently indicated an interest in sort of finding out what Comey's memos and yes. other documents are about. So, okay, maybe he's going to move his grade up a little bit. But if you look at the whole period prior to that, it's been pretty feckless. I think it's so important to our checks and balances system that Democrats regain control of the gavel in the 2018 election. These hearings would look very different right oh, now. Oh my goodness. I was on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee in 2007 and 2008. That was the last two years of the George W. Bush administration. Henry Waxman was the chair of that committee. 
and we were investigating all kinds of uh, corruption abuses with contracting in Iraq and other mm -hmm. sorts of things. And that was the kind of oversight that Congress ought to be exercising in, in circumstances like that. Although I think we're beginning to see, and this is why the outcry in the public has been really helpful, that they, that Republican members are, are sensitive to that public outcry and they are beginning to appreciate the political consequences of, of sort of putting their head in the sand and standing arm in arm with Donald Trump. Yeah. So the more we invite the public to voice its concerns about the president and these lines that he's crossing every single day, the more that message will get to rank-and-file members of Congress. It matters. It I mean, absolutely I think matters. People are constantly wondering, does it matter that I'm writing letters to the editor and contacting congressional offices? There's no question it matters. Actually, I, I had these people who kept coming up to me saying, you know, what can we do? What can we do? So I actually just made a card that says, here's what you can do. I need to get and it's got Yeah, I'll make sure you get it. It's got eight things. And I vetted these as things that I thought really did make a difference, you know, make, make calls, send emails, that matters. Yeah. It matters to those of us who are fighting back because it boosts our morale, it lets us know that mm -hmm. the public out there is, is with us. It certainly matters to those, for example, who want to repeal the health care bill because yeah. they discovered, hey, we're being watched on this, and that helped us in the first round kind of beat the repeal back, and I think it will help the Senate land in a very different place on this, this health care change mm -hmm. as we move forward. But you know, other things, register and sign a vote pledge, go to forums, join peaceful protests, and then tell all your friends in other states to do the same. Um, so I think what's happening in the country is making a difference. And I want to encourage people to keep the pressure on. At the same time, we have to pace ourselves because it's early. Yeah. And again, the ultimate test is whether this energy finds its way to the ballot box. That's the highest form of protest in American democracy, is to go out and exercise your right to vote. And if the people who are as concerned and anxious about where the president's taking the country right now, make sure they get out, they get others to vote, uh, they mobilize around the 2018 election, we may get that gavel back, Jared, and be in a position to really bring pressure uh, on the president and his team. Right. And I just, it, it comes down to power. I say to people, don't give your power to Donald Trump, don't give it to Hillary Clinton, don't give it to Jared Huffman or John Sarbanes. Hold your power. And the way you hold it is you own the elections. You're the ones that underwrite these campaigns. And the good news is, it's a very modest investment when you look at the return you get in the form of good policy. So that's why we got to get it done. Well, John Sarbanes, you're a man on a mission, and it's a great mission, and you're a great colleague. Thanks for coming on my Thanks podcast. for having me. Thanks for all your work on this. I've got a number of questions on the subject of how can the Trump administration be held accountable for what it's doing to these various government agencies, the vacancies that exist, the incompetent people that are being put in charge, the kind of intimidation, the almost the political minders that are being placed uh, almost like KGB agents in these various agencies? 
to make sure that uh, everything is according to the party line. Um, well, I mean, there are definitely there are a variety of different avenues, although they're all difficult. I mean, one thing I would start with, though, is that um, uh, Trump has sent up a budget, uh, and Congress thankfully pretty much disregarded it um, in uh, when they passed their appropriations bill, funding the government through the end of the year. Um, the, the, the cuts that he proposed uh, were basically totally rejected. Um, they did add some funding for the defense uh, budget, but otherwise um, I think Congress did mostly the right thing. Mean, we'd like to see other things funded more and maybe defense less. Um, but uh, by and large, what, what happened is not what Donald Trump was asking for. Um, so there's, there's, there's some optimism in that. Um, of course, what happens next year is going to be a different story. Um, they may have some more understanding of how the government works, you know, branches of government and, uh, um, and so forth may put a little more thought into their budget process. Um, but for this particular year, um, we've passed um, the worst part of it. Um, but I think, you know, there's obviously a great danger um, with the attrition of um, people of, with great um, uh, expertise leaving the government, uh, particularly scientists and others, um, who are not going to be replaced. Uh, and, uh, and that's something we can't really force. Um, but one of the things that we're trying to do is working with um, our members all across the country. And we, we're an organization that is nationwide. We have chapters across the country in law schools, but also with lawyers. Um, and they are researching uh, who, the, who the staff is that's being brought in at the higher levels so we have an understanding. Again, because the media is such an important player here, illuminating who is actually taking on an important uh, position in government that may not require Senate confirmation, uh, and ex making sure that the public knows who these people are. And that's a vital piece of this, as well as protecting whistleblowers. Um, we do have whistleblower protection statutes, uh, and we are um, working with the variety of organizations, the unions and others that are there uh, to stand with the federal workforce. Um, but that's going to be a vital piece of this, uh, as is uh, ensuring that there are members of Congress, uh, like Congressman Huffman, who people can come to, to tell stories about what's happening inside the agencies. But this is a very, very difficult moment um, for all of us, and I think we have to be very vigilant in watching what happens. All right, here's a question uh, back on the sanctuary city immigration issue. Um, questioner notes that a recent poll, or states that a recent poll showed 75% of Californians oppose sanctuary cities. What am I doing about it? Let me, uh, I'm certainly uh, happy to speak to what I'm doing about it. Um, I disagree with those who oppose sanctuary cities. Um, however, this is a reference to a poll, and I can sort of imagine that that poll question framed sanctuary cities uh, in a specific way. And I wonder if you might get a very different answer if you ask that question differently that didn't use a loaded, politicized term like sanctuary cities. So I guess it's an opportunity to talk about how that term has become somewhat loaded and uh, where people uh, are going with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there is no definition of the term sanctuary city. I think that it has been sort of 
corrupted and co-opted by the right into meaning jurisdictions that protect criminals. Right. Um, and that is not what it means. But again, we're losing this narrative. The narrative is getting away from us. And so when people hear the term sanctuary city, they think, I mean, we, it's like I've got criminals hiding under my desk at the office in San Francisco. We all just hide them under there and try to protect them. Um, and that's not what sanctuary cities are. So I think part of it is depending on how the question is asked, and part of it is how we all talk about sanctuary jurisdictions. Sanctuary jurisdictions exist across the country in almost every major city because cities have looked at it and determined that if we don't take steps to protect immigrants, then we all suffer. It's not about protecting criminals. It's about protecting children whose families are going to be split up. It's about protecting all of our health so that people feel safe going to doctors and taking their children to be immunized. It's about protecting us from crime so that people feel safer reporting crimes to police and cooperating with police. And when you have those conversations about what our sanctuary city laws really do and who they protect and why they're important, the conversation starts to change dramatically. So yes, I question those poll numbers, and I question the narrative, and that we all need to, again, talk about these issues very differently, because we are letting the term be corrupted and co-opted into something that it was never meant to be. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>